This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 119 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest today is Monzi Mirza. He's the VP and head of security research at Splunk. He shares his journey into tech and security, including leadership positions in both the government and private sectors, his thoughts on threat intelligence and the maturity companies need to properly implement it, as well as his perspective on the current state of SIMS and how they'll need to evolve to keep up with the changes happening in the industry and the world at large. Stay with us. I took my first quote-unquote programming class. Uh, I was the only person in that class because my dad was able to arrange a thing with the institution when I was in fifth grade. Hmm. So I learned to uh, learn to program in basic. You can think of it as like a professional tutor almost. Um, <laughs> so that's how I that's how I learned it. Uh, I was too young, but but they were like, "How can this kid do this?" And my dad said, "No, no, he understands these things. He likes to tinker." And so so that was my start. And then. I had a really sort of meandering career. I, I was going to go to college for other things, not computer science related. And then I dropped out of college and I started my own little business doing web development and stuff for a little while. And after that, I started doing odds and ends kind of things. The Y2K stuff happened. I started mm. doing a lot of migrations for just consulting, contracting work. And then ultimately, I landed up uh, to work for, for, for the Department of Energy my first job was with them at the at Los Alamos National Labs. I so that's when I really started to get into a little bit of security. There's a big security culture at the Department of Energy, mm. uh, and and so uh, so started learning things there, and then eventually moved into uh, the security teams there. And uh, I, I I like to say you know my entry into the quote unquote security space was uh, was by demonstration, mm. and. Uh, Believe that for another conversation over coffee, but uh, uh, oh, I see. But, yeah, I see. But, where you're going but with someone, that. Uh, but someone, <laughs> uh, someone decided that it was better to have this person and be in an organized environment. So uh, I see. So I was, I, I was fortunate for that. I uh, had good mentors and teachers, and uh, and and so that's that's kind of how I got got into the security stuff. And then once I, you know, I then I learned to do a lot of interesting things. Worked on some pretty amazing teams. It was a, it was a big privilege working for the government, doing a lot of different things, uh, both on the offensive side and the defensive side. And also not just not just trying to break things, but also trying to build tools, uh, both hardware and software tools. Um, so it was it was a lot of fun. And now I've been in Splunk for about eight years and a quarter. Things are pretty exciting. I, I, I really, I, I like to say I really only have have had two two real jobs. Uh, my because my work at the, the uh, in in government was probably about thirteen years long, mm. uh, fourteen years long almost, and uh, and then my other part of my life has been at Splunk for about eight years, and 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 prior to that, it was just a lot of odds and ends kinds of things that I did. And so, what is your day to day like there at Splunk? So I break up my my job responsibilities are really three part. Uh, one, as a leader on the security market group, which by itself is a pretty sizable chunk of the two billion dollar revenue company that is Splunk Incorporated. So as a leader in that in that business unit or in, in that market group, we don't call them business units. In that market group, 
I participate with the rest of the leadership team on making sort of, you know, on all the sort of strategic decisions that you can imagine one requires for the business, whether it's M&A related, whether it's directionally related, whether it's uh, sometimes it's product related or people related. So I, that's a lot of internal facing stuff uh, that I participate on. So I spend significant time there. The other sort of two thirds of uh, or an, another third of my time is spent because I'm the, the head of research and the vice president of security research for Forrest Blanc. I have my own teams and I spend a lot of time with those teams and collaborating and 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 leading the research initiatives both from a people management point of view and also from a technology and and research point of view. I, I like to say I still keep my hands dirty. Uh, so I just don't talk about stuff. I, I do things as well uh, on on those teams and, and and explore areas. And the last third of my job as part of being uh, with Splunk and given my background and and, and my, my curiosities, I spend a lot of time with our customers, with Splunk's customers, talking about what Splunk is doing, where Splunk is going, and also really learning from customers in terms of what is it that they'd like to see, what are the challenges that they face, not just technological, but operational issues and so on. So we can bring that back and and reflect that and be able to serve the customers with the with the amazing products uh, that, that Splunk creates and continue to keep them amazing and, and be of service to, to customers. Well, uh, for folks who might not be familiar with Splunk, obviously a well-known uh, name in the industry, um, can you give us an overview of the type of things that you all handle there? Yeah, so Splunk's mission in life is, is, is what we like to say is to make machine data accessible, usable, and valuable for everybody. And I, if you think of machine data, it's everything. It's this digital exhaust of everything from firewalls to point of sale systems to IoT devices to trains and, and all, all sorts of these things. All these machines, when they talk to each other uh, and communicate with each other, they generate machine data. So Splunk's, uh, Splunk makes that machine data usable and accessible and valuable for people. And, and, and so what ends up happening is when you have this data, what can you do with it? Well, you can create reports so you can understand how many devices you have. Or if you get more advanced, you can start to do troubleshooting because you can figure out how an email system or, or a retail system web service is working in co- correlation with the backend stored systems. Uh, in the security space, Splunk can be utilized for SIM operations. So you can do security incident and event management or threat detection or automated response by way of Splunk's capability. And of course, those are the use cases underneath the hood. Splunk is this this amazing platform that can collect information from anywhere, any kind of system, and can openly integrate with other systems and has capabilities for machine learning and analysis and searching and so on so that uh, you can you can get value of the things that you're trying to do. And, uh, and, and, and essentially, at the end of the day, really allows you to investigate, monitor, analyze, and act on the data that you're that you're collecting so that you can move your business or your mission forward. Well, let's dig in a bit and talk about uh, threat intelligence and uh, your take on that, how it fits into an organization's defenses. I think threat intelligence, when I talk to our customers, they it, there are a couple of different classes in which uh, they evaluate threat intelligence or they see threat intelligence. And then I'll, I'll share their view first. Um, I like to be customer-led. And, and, and then I'll share a little bit of my view from, from my own history and practice. Um, mm-hmm. So from a customer point of view, threat intelligence has, I think, two major facets. The, the first one is uh, they're taking in threat intelligence really in the form of indicators of compromise in, in most cases, whether those are IP addresses or email addresses or host names, et cetera. And they're enriching the data that they're collecting so that essentially they can make a decision to say, um, you know, I, I have an IP address in a, in a log file somewhere or I have an authentication event someplace. And is this 
uh, is this bad or does this belong to or has this been related to some threat activity? So that's, I would say, is a kind of a, a let's call that an enrichment related activity for threat intelligence so that they can they can raise the confidence of a particular event or a particular alert. Um, another mechanism, the more mature organizations, what they're what they're doing is they're creating threat intelligence. So when there is an incident or when there is an alert or event, they go through their security operation processes uh, and the investigative processes and ultimately yield some set of really intelligence at that point, because then they have context in terms of uh, there was a certain attack, it was targeting a certain system, and w- what was the system, who was the source, what kind of exploit was used, or what kind of, what, what sort of an, uh, what sort of a compromise was attempted. And so they're creating threat intelligence for themselves. So those are the, those are the two sort of big classes that I see. Now, over time, what's happening is as, as the industry matures, so now this is a little bit of my view with a, a color with what I'm seeing, seeing customers do, is mm-hmm. they are, they're maturing to the point where they're saying, okay, we, we get this notion of uh, IOCs, if you will, indicators of compromises, with, and, but we want more context and, and better, in, really intelligence, not just indicators, but intelligence in, in almost like the, uh, a, a little bit of the, of, of, of the military intelligence style, where you say, well, intelligence, the idea behind intelligence is to gain an unfair advantage against your adversary. And so now I think a lot of organizations are expanding their definition of threat intelligence, what used to be essentially threat feeds or IOCs into threat intelligence to try to understand what are the kinds of actors that are coming after them and also then trying to understand what sort of vulnerabilities exist within their systems, not just from a configuration management vulnerability point of view, but but more more broadly strategically what vulnerabilities exist and try to understand it. So I think those organizations are now expanding beyond IOCs and going into understanding what are people tweeting about them or who, what kind of what kind of people are interacting with their websites or what sort of lo- locations and and uh, and and also you know in in terms of you know, people talk about dark web stuff but m- even more practically what are people saying about their organizations or what are the things that might happen as a result of let's say a merger or acquisition or or as a result of a lawsuit or something like that so it's expanding for the more mature organizations. Do you find that there are any common misperceptions that people have when they're when when they're trying to spin up or, or make better use of threat intelligence within their organization? Um, are there areas that uh, they need to be filled in on that, that you all you help provide clarification with? A lot of organizations, I think, there's, there's they they don't recognize that 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 there is a journey to this, and sometimes I myself struggle with this term term journey. But it's but the idea is that not everyone is ready for threat intelligence in any form at day one as they're starting their security operations. I mean, there is there is a maturity level in the sense that both both from a technological point of view. And from a process point of view as well, uh, in the sense that uh, if, we, if we go back to, you know, historically, I and mean, we say, well, somebody, let's say somebody just showed up at your desk and gave you gave you a threat intel report, and, and it's very comprehensive, and it has actors and locations and intent and and IOCs as well, and all the different things and the TTPs, the the, the, the techniques and tools and procedures, or uh, that that that. Uh, uh, or tactics that an adversary might use. Let's say you have all that. Now the question is like, what would you do with it? Um, and I think that's where the maturity comes into play is for organizations to understand the usefulness of it and for organizations to be ready to receive 
threat intelligence so that they can action the threat intelligence. So I think that's an important that is an important maturity point uh, that maybe not all organizations realize. Um, but I think it's it's as the industry matures, and by industry here, I don't mean the the technology or vendor community, but the actual industry itself of organizations and 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 governments and so on using and maturing their cybersecurity operations. I think people are getting to understand that a little bit more and more. Hmm. I, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about SIMS. Um, first of all, where are we today? Where do we find ourselves with the the current uh, state of SIMS, how they're being used, how people are implementing them. What's your take there? I think it's useful when we talk about SIMS to just take a step back and think about where SIMS came from. Um, I think as the sort of digital explosion started happening, even in the 90s or maybe in the early 2000s, uh, people started deploying firewalls and antiviruses and they had this diversity of of different technologies. Uh, let's just call them sensors that they were detecting things or they were they, they were needed to detect things. Um, SIMs came about and, and the, the early SIMs were essentially collectors of alerts and, 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 and they almost kind of hijacked the term correlation because they weren't really correlating anything. But the idea of a correlation was more in the sense that I have an AV that sends me information. I have lots of different AVs, so I'm going to collect and aggregate that information. And that's kind of where SIMS came about. They were they were reporting engines. They were, they were sort of these things where you can get started from. And fast forward to today, um, and, you know, they have evolved a lot. And the big thing that happened in that sort of middle phase, being that sort of reporting phase and now where SIMS are today is is this this idea that it's not just about collecting a bunch of detections, which is what the early SIMS did, but it's about being able to investigate it. And from that investigation notion, then this idea came about, well, you don't necessarily just need to investigate. You need to, you need to respond to these things as well. And response has these notions of part of automation, but also these heavy, heavy sort of requirements for integration. Um, and so now we fast forward to today where the sims that what the customer is asking for from sims to do is being is the ability to collect data from anywhere, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's on prem, whether it's multi cloud and collecting any kind of information. So that's a first capability any sim has to have now. It's not just being able to collect alerts from somewhere. The second ability it has to have is this analytical capability, which is not just the ability just to search, but the analytical capability to apply machine learning models to be able to to enrich and contextualize information. And then the the other element at the at the sort of the top layer is to act and operate on whatever the information is so that that information can be used to respond. So I think that so SIM is becoming more of a is the requirement for SIM now is to be more of a system than to be this one thing that can just that can just collect information from one place. I mean, it really is becoming the the expectation now for SIM is to be the security operations center's nerve center, and and that's where the action happens because analysts actually operate and use a SIM. They don't just look at it, which was the sort of historical or the, the which is what they did with the first uh, SIMs. Do you think that people have realistic expectations of? of what's coming from their sims well <laughs> i think the this is where i would maybe be a little controversial and I, I and i would say that that the security industry at large has 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 done a little bit of a disservice i think to our community um the marketing tends to be a little bit farther ahead of what the technology capabilities are in general 
And, mm-hmm. and as a consequence, what happens is customers are building expect, customers on the one hand have expectations because they have their own imagination or they have their own pain points. And that's why they have expectations. But the other side of it is they have expectations because the industry, regardless of whether it's a SIM or any other kind of technologies, the industry is telling them or the vendors are telling them that they can deliver certain capabilities. And and in some cases, I would say, you know, maybe the vendors are not necessarily, quote unquote, lying, but it's when they use a term, the customer has a expectation from that term, which is not the same as as what mm. maybe the vendor is saying. And so I think right. there is a little bit of a mismatch. Um, and, and I think the customer expectations are not necessarily, in, in some cases, the, the only sort of, I would say, unrealistic expectations are the ones where they skip these, what I would, descri- what I would describe as, as, a, as a maturity level of the customer itself. So for example, you can't really have a good security operations program if you don't have a basic underlying vulnerability management program in your organization. You can't say, I'm going to build a threat intel team where we say, well, what's your vulnerability management program look like? And say, well, we have one person in a 100,000 you know, employee company that's responsible mm-hmm. for vulnerability management. Well, you're missing a development gap here. Well, I mean, looking forward uh, towards the future, how do you see SIMS evolving? What do you think uh, we're going to see looking towards the horizon? The biggest thing that would happen for SIMS, and that is going to happen, is is that SIM is going to is, is going to have to. I mean, this is good. This is like a SIM SIM survival almost, right? Uh, otherwise, the the organizations, the the SIM producers who don't do the following will not survive the next five years. And the the one biggest capability, uh, the underlying piece is having a platform that is not just focused on quote unquote security events, but is focused on event data in general. Because when you think about the way the world is changing from a digital point of view, whether it's IoT, whether it's cloud computing, whether it's apps and services, containerization technologies, when you see the world in this highly connected way, it's it's very difficult to argue what is not a security significant event or security useful event. So that's number one. So that platform capability has to exist. I think the other piece is it has to be resident. That platform capability has to be very open because connectivity is the key to connecting all these different environments. And so by open, I don't just mean that it's open to connecting from one kind of technology. By open, I mean the platforms themselves have to be open so they can connect to each other. This is where I, I like this concept of a nerve center is that it's, it is a bi-directional connectivity. So I think they're going to have to have that capability. And then the, this notion, you know, there's a lot of hype around machine learning and AI. People use those terms. We really have to, SIMs are going to have to make those things consumable. You cannot expect that organizations are going to have teams and teams of data scientists in, in security operations um, to be able to manipulate the tool. So the, so the SIMs are going to have to work the way the people work rather than having the people work the system. So I have some friends who say, well, I've been doing machine learning my whole life. Um, every time I get a new machine, I have to learn it. And, <laughs> and it, it has to be, I think it has to be the other way around a little bit, that these systems have to be built in, in, in a manner and machine learning has to be used in practical, in, in practical ways. And then the last piece is that this whole notion of 
operational uh, expediency and high, highly integrated automation. And automation, not just in the perspective of configuration management, which is what most people think about when they think about automation. Automation and in in, in, in things like how do they accelerate the human decision-making process? How do they create more context? How do they pull information on the fly? How do they enable people to collaborate with each other or have recommendation systems to say, oh, you know, the last time Sally, who was an expert in, 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 the, in a security operations center, for example, the last time Sally saw this alert, she did A, B, C, D steps. And, and John, your looks like the thing that you're working on is like 87% like what Sally worked on. Do you want me to just do what Sally did? And, and it kind of mm. give you those results. So I think it's those kinds of things that Sims are going to have to evolve to because the complexity and the challenges that people are dealing with are, 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 are very extreme. Do you have the sense that things are headed in that direction or those problems people are, are hammering away at? I think there are organizations that... In the industry, there are there are companies that are taking this very seriously. There are some that are still kind of talking about the legacy thing and they're stuck in some hype to try to compensate for technological deficiencies. And I think there are others who are casting a broader vision and saying, look, we need to get someplace. So um, and, and then there will always be gaps. And I think this is where this is where the startup community is going to come in and, and, and fill the gaps. Um, and, and then the, the, the bigger players will either get disrupted or, or they will they will acquire some of these startups to to accelerate their own roadmap. So I think uh, from a, I mean, look, I'm I'm a paranoid security practitioner, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm a security practitioner. So I, I'm generally an optimist. <laughs> and, and, and so there is I think there is hope and I think th- things will continue to grow and evolve uh, uh, for the better. At the end of the day, it's about the people, whether those people are your customers or whether those people are the employees in an organization and, and from a security point of view, the security operator. It's ultimately about that security operator. And I think the more the technology industry and security industry focuses on that operator and says, what does this operator care about? And how does this operator's life get better? I think that's the more we will we will create better solutions. And I think the the sort of converse of that for the operators is to be more vocal uh, about what it is that they need and also be more in tune with what the business or mission requires for them. And so I think we can do better. The, the, the more we anchor in on the human aspect of this, the more the technology translation will happen in a meaningful way. Our thanks to Monzi Mirza from Splunk for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.